0: All right, well, welcome to Five Points Community Church tonight uh, for our seminar on The Good Life with John Stark. So uh, when thinking through uh, just different topics, issues, things that we could address uh, as a church, um, one of the things uh, that started to come on our radar was uh, John talking about an upcoming book uh, that he was working on writing uh, that's released in the next couple weeks uh, about our topic tonight um, and we thought it would be very helpful uh, and selfishly to be able to hang out with my friend too but uh, to uh, have John come in and address uh, this very important topic because our, our world does proclaim that what constitutes the good life, uh, what the culture around us says is admirable, uh, successful uh, what it means to, to really succeed or have the good life, um, the metrics they measure that by are primarily visible. Uh, and the air we breathe says that our sense of self-worth and identity um, are metrics that are to be displayed. Uh, and when that's true, then making uh, the performance of self uh, becomes more important uh, than what is really true of ourselves. Um, putting on that show is what uh, we do then turn to to find our self-worth and what other people respond to rather than that's really real of us. And so uh, we're led to believe that the most important things about us are to be performed before others and that our deepest happiness will come from being who others think we ought to be or tell us we should be. Uh, And then that goes up and down based on how many likes or clicks or retweets or followers or all that. And so we're on this constant cycle of trying to seek happiness and never finding it. Uh, And so what does Jesus say uh, to us who live in this kind of world, this kind of air that we breathe? What's Jesus say? He says, do not practice your righteousness before others. And so he calls us to a different kind of life. Uh, One that's lived before God. And so he teaches us through that. uh, And hopefully uh, tonight John uh, will come and help us see these truths um, that the good life is not uh, lived before the eyes of others or even for ourselves, um, but the good life is found in the secret place where our Father in heaven sees and rewards. And so that's what uh, we'll shape our time with tonight. We're thankful for John. He's come from New York City where he lives with Jenna and four kids in a small New York apartment. Uh, And he is the lead pastor of Apostles Church Uptown uh, and authored this book uh, that tonight is kind of based on The Secret Place of Thunder, uh, Trading Our Need to Be Noticed for a Hidden Life with Christ. Uh, that's coming out in a couple weeks. There's some postcards from the publisher out there to help you be able to pre-order that uh, if you haven't already. Uh, and uh, he's also the author of um, uh, practi- uh, The Prayer. Sorry, I just lost it. It's okay. Something about prayer. Practices. What's that? Prayer. Just put John Stark Prayer on Amazon. It'll come up. <laughs> uh, it's very helpful, too. Uh, he's very thoughtful. Uh, if you've uh, followed him on on Twitter or uh, blog post on the Gospel Coalition. Just very thankful for him coming. He's not only a dear friend, but a very trusted guide on this important subject. So John, thanks for coming. And before you come and uh, speak to us, let me pray. So our Father, uh, we do pray that tonight you would come amongst us uh, and give us eyes to see Jesus call us to this good life, that you'd give us ears to hear, uh, hearts that would desire, uh, finding uh, the reward That you hold out to us more desirable and precious than anything we could find in this world. So we pray that tonight uh, that you would uh, speak to us through John and teach us how to seek you uh, supremely. We pray, Amen. JJ is going to feel
1: terrible about forgetting the title of that book, and it's fine. Um, It's about prayer. it is really good to be with you. I was here. Listen, the Lord made certain ears for these microphones, and I didn't get that model. So um, if I fiddle with this, just want to ask for your grace. Um, I was here uh, in, at Five Points about uh, 12 or 13 years ago, and it's good to see some familiar faces uh, this evening. So I'm really glad to be here. Um, we are talking about Uh, what is the good life, and a good place to begin talking about the good life is thinking about what's wholeness. So, this, this evening, I wanted to talk about wholeness, what I mean by wholeness. You can think about wholeness in a few ways. Biblically speaking, you can think about it with the Psalms when they talk about being wholehearted it's Psalm 9, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Or Psalm 16, 9, my whole being rejoices. Or Psalm 119, blessed are those who seek the Lord with their whole heart. Don't you ever feel guilty when you, when you read that? I don't know if I do that. And it's, it's talking about an existence where there's no contradictory parts in your inner life. Nothing, no divisions of allegiances, no conflicting desires. You know, it's like the I want a six pack, but I like pizza, right? It's that desire of I, I want deep relationships, but I have certain ambitions in my vocation that keep me away from intimacy i have a desire to be intimate with christ in the mornings but i also have a desire for entertainment that keeps me late into the evenings right these conflicting desires and and part of the good life is being able to say holy like psalm 27 one thing i have asked that i seek after that I may, do you know it, that I may what? Dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One desire, not just I only desire one thing, but there's sort of one thing that orders all of your desires. It's to seek after Him. So there's a wholeheartedness to wholeness, and then there's maybe a sense of of healing where there are certain things in our lives and our experience our failures our sins that have kept us from being able to follow christ freely certain what what is the the he, book of hebrews says there's certain weights that weigh us down from running with jesus um, certain fears Do you know how many times the bible says do not be afraid Three hundred sixty-five. No joke. Are you being serious? Oh my goodness! I had I don't know in there. Um, man, well, um, well, I that mean, I think that's a significant part of the good life. Is not being afraid. Is to fear not. So you can put off all the weights and just run. That's wholeness. And I think that's a significant part of the good life. But the, a difficult thing for li- living in our in our modern world, our, our, our world has a pretty different vision of what wholeness looks like. So I can, I can give you an example. I was uh, doing some pastoral counseling with a young man, and we're trying to walk through what is, what is having a... a a new testament vision of his sexual identity and trying to walk with jesus and be faithful to jesus's commands and we've been talking for a number of months and he came in one time and he's a grad student at um, columbia university and he he was talking to a therapist and um that he wasn't cheating on me i wasn't mad that he was talking to a therapist it's fine that he was doing that um but he came in with a question because this is what his therapist said his therapist said Listen, if you don't begin to walk in authenticity to your sexual identity and pursue sexual freedom, you'll never be whole. Um, And you'll have, what was the the term? You you won't have a mature identity formation. Now, whether the therapist is right or wrong, um, I do wonder where that came from. Because if you talk to my grandfather... Who, uh, who lived in the middle of Missouri, was a farmer, was a son of a farmer. His name was John, just like me. And uh, if you came up to him and says, John, unless you begin to walk in authenticity to your sexual identity and sexual freedom, you won't ever experience wholeness. I don't know what he would say, but I think he would be really confused. It might be the first time he would hear that. But I do think that's probably a really common way in which our society thinks about wholeness is being able to walk authentically with your sexual identity and sexual freedom. That's the good life. How did we get there? Well, I think, I think Jesus has something to say to that, but I wonder if we can imagine how we as a, a culture has, has gotten in. I'm not just talking about scary progressive New York City. I'm, I'm talking about Oakland University um, our own communities, not progressive. I think both progressive and conservatives are, are thinking in this way. Maybe has a different flavor, but they are thinking in this way. So how did we get here? Well, if you, maybe for just for the next 20 minutes, I'm not gonna talk only for another 20 minutes, but just for the next 20 minutes, if you could just allow me to put my teaching hat just for a minute, since you're awake and still giving attention for now, Um, maybe I can try not to abuse it. But I want to use a term. It's not my term. It's called expressive individualism. Um, Robert Bella, he wrote a book. He was a sociologist in the 80s and 90s. He wrote a book called Habits, Habit of the Heart. And he had this term, expressive individualism, to describe our modern world. And it really kind of comes... From um, all the way back, if you remember from your like intro to philosophy class back in college of the romanticism and and Jean Rousseau, where very simply that the version of you, there's a version of you that's beautiful and whole and authentic. And the problem is society and rules and traditions and conventions and codes and taboos all are inhibitors of your true self. If you could just get past those things. The most, what is most true about you is not tampered by society. It's not tampered by institutions and authorities. The, the question that they would ask is, what would you desire? What would you want if you were liberated from social constructs and conventions of our world? And that was like the 17th and 18th and 19th century. They weren't seeking just deviant behavior. They actually thought there was a goodness in humanity and society was the bad guy keeping us doing bad things. If we could just be ourselves, if we could be ruled not by the the institutions of the church or politics, but by our desires, we might be good. And so... um, That's sort of like the DNA of how our society has begun to think about what's the good life? What is wholeness? So if I can give you a definition now of expressive individualism, it's this, all right? The highest ethical ideal is the liberation and the fulfillment of the individual. That's the highest ethical ideal is the liberation and fulfillment of the individual. There's, there's nothing, there's no wider framework than the self when you're trying to construct values and priorities in, in our world. So, authorities and institutions and religions and families and communities, they're primarily either hindrances or enhancements to self-fulfillment not primar- the primary ingredients to the good life. They're just either enhancements or hindrances, not the primary ingredients. Charles Taylor, um, he wrote a big, thick book on what is a secular society, and he doesn't use any, really, any meaningful language about religion. He doesn't go atheist versus religious. He doesn't go uh, sexually pure and sexually immoral. He talks about in a secular society, it's when there's no higher commitment than self fulfillment. There's no higher commitment than self fulfillment. The inner desires are what shapes our values and priorities. Robert Bella, um, in his book Habits of the Heart, he goes, Modern individuals are more articulate about self fulfillment and identity formation what they want, who they want to be, and have difficult time articulating the richness of our commitments. So we're really good at talking about who we, who we want to be and what we want. We're not very clear about what we're committed to or who we're committed to. Um, according to expressive individualism, all commitments, whether it's marriage, work, religion, community, your civic responsibilities and duties, they are all meant to simply be enhancements to your well-being. So think of like a gym membership. A gym membership is not something that you have a covenant relationship with. It's supposed to be an enhancement to your self-fulfillment. I want to look and feel a certain way, and so I'm going to commit to this agreement with my gym as long as it's an enhancement to my life but it begi- when it begins to be a burden and it begins to take away the things that i'm really committed to or really like doing i will just lop that relationship off the the thing now is that we think we treat all of our commitments and obligations like gym memberships when it's no longer enhancing my self-fulfillment i can easily cut them off and, and put them away Charles Taylor, he says, other people, and you can think about communities even, other people are seen as raw material or instruments for our projects of self-fulfillment. Other people are seen as the raw material or the instruments of my self-fulfillment. And if you think about that in romantic relationships, then other people are just the raw material to my sexual exploration and fulfillment. So, um, can I just organize this with it, our thoughts in two ways? There's two sides to this. There's a therapeutic side and a moralistic side, all right? The therapeutic side, think back to my pastoral conversation with this young man who's trying to wrestle with his sexual identity. And the, the, the therapist who says, you will never be whole. You will never lack identity formation until you're sexually free. There's a shadow side to that. And it's not simply that he's in danger now or being tempted to go towards sexual freedom and sexual li- liberation. That's true. But the other shadow side to that is that only now, The sexually free can be whole. And that's really hard when you're thinking about the life of Jesus, who lived a chaste life, who didn't seek self-fulfillment as the highest highest ideal, but self-giving, and lived a a whole entire life as a single sexually chaste man. And what our society is, they cannot imagine that Life being anything other than a diminishment, not the good life. The other side of that, um, Nona Willis Aronowicz, she's a columnist for Teen Vogue, which is not a bastion of New Testament sexual ethic. Um, She wrote a book called Bad Sex, The Truth, Pleasure, and an Unfinished Revelation. I do not suggest that book. Okay, so please don't read that book, and they're like, well, John told me to read it. I am not telling you to read this book, um, but it is, a, it was a very popular um, book in 2022 about how our culture is thinking about sexuality, but in a moment of, I think, real honesty, she said this, the overwhelming emotion that young women feel in our culture that says you can't be whole without sexual freedom, the overwhelming Emotion is shame and guilt. Guilt for not expressing yourself as freely and sexually as our culture thinks you ought to be in order to be whole. And shame for not having the same sexual desires and excitement as the cultural heroes seem to think that you ought to have. There's a, there's a kind of sense, especially when, you know, and in, in, in I, I encounter this a lot, there's a lot of... Uh, Single people in our church in New York, just tons of single people, and they're 35, and they hear, I'm not whole. There's something wrong with me. They can hear it on the conservative side, you're not whole because you're not married, or hear it on the liberal side, you're not whole because you're not sexually free. And so there's this deep undertow of sadness. There's also a moralistic side. Um, You might be pretty critical of uh, expressive individualism, and I think you should be, but you might be critical because you think, well, they're just trying to be immoral. They're trying to just pursue uh, a morally lax lifestyle. And I think actually it's hyper-moralistic because the same therapist who said to my friend, you're never going to be whole is going to say to me, and you're the problem you're the immoral monster who keeps telling him not to be free. I mean, I grew up in the 1980s and I became a Christian as a teenager and none of my friends were Christians and none of them wanted to be Christians. None of them were interested in the morality of Christianity, but all of them to a T thought I was more moral than them. When I moved to New York in 2011, all my neighbors, none of them were Christians, and none of them wanted to be Christians, but they all awkwardly called me Father because they didn't know how to, like, what to call me and they wanted to give some sort of deference to me. I could go into any uh, hospital or community center or civic center and there'd be a kind of deference, even though they just thought I was wacky in what I believe, they at least thought I was moral. But now, now Christians are thought to hold beliefs and commitments that are unjust immoral, and oppressive. We're the bad guys. And think about the hero narratives now in our movies. They're not the one who's sacrificing their personal well-being for those who they are committed to and love, but they're the people who are brave enough to sacrifice relationships in order to seek self-fulfillment. Alan Noble, he wrote a really great book, and I would suggest it. It's called "You Are Not what You Are Not Your Own." And this is what he said. He said, "Many have the common experience of waking up one day and concluding that the roles, relationships and obligations and lifestyles that once defined their identity are no longer fulfilling." And in that moment, listen to this line, in that moment A modern person can come to feel that it would be immoral not to follow this new, truer identity. There's a kind of empowerment that I actually, I'm obligated to follow what I feel like is my truer and better self, which leads to, and I'm going to take my teaching hat off in three minutes, okay? Um something I think expressive individualism has turned into or morphed into, and it's what J.J. was hinting at earlier. It's morphed into something more like performative individualism because the the freedom to define and express yourself has actually evolved into the obligation to do so only when it's culturally acceptable. So our, our culture really does at least vocally, supports individual expressions of self-curated identity and self-fulfillment. But at the same time, we experience something from our culture that's a conflicting message. If your self-expression doesn't meet certain socially constructed expectations, you will be ignored, isolated, dismissed, or online, you'll be canceled. The desire for us is that we want to be ourselves but we also want to be loved and our culture rarely gives us both and the the desire though the stronger desire that's really humming and driving us is that we want to be loved and so we will put on the performative mask as long as it will get us in so if i could maybe describe performative individualism or give a definition it's, it's not the vocal, but it's the inter- internalized idea that the markers of your success, that you've made it, you're, you're living the good life, are primarily visible. That's why we can post it online. We can post it on, on Instagram. Self-worth are, are really metrics to be displayed. It's like that couple... And know, the couple that's always in Europe, you know? Maybe you're here. <laughs> um, you're just scrolling through in- Instagram, and it's that account that comes up again. They're in Europe again. And what you say out loud is, that's oh, so beautiful. But what you're saying inside is, I hate them, right? <laughs> They're always there. But what are they doing? They're giving, they're trying to portray and doing a really good job of a life that's admirable. What do you think about them? They're li- they got their life together. They're doing it right. I had a friend of ours, that, a couple I was doing some marriage counseling with, and they weren't, you know, they weren't a disaster. They weren't frontal apart, but they had this fight. And she had to apologize for getting mad at her husband for taking a picture of her in their kitchen and posting it online when their kitchen didn't portray the kind of success that they think they ought to have gotten at this point, right? It doesn't have that, like, tongue oil uh, edge with the hanging pots and the, you know, the, the things that you see that you want, and you won't take a picture of your kitchen until it looks like that. And you can be judgmental, and you can maybe go, oh, my gosh, that's so superficial. You do the same thing. <laughs> right? She was just self-aware and just repented of it. It's often hard for us to repent of performative individualism. You can be who you are, our culture says. Please be yourself. But if you want to be loved, if you want to be admired, included on the right side of history, be sure to express yourself in a way that our society deems lovable, admirable, and good. And that's a really exhausting life. It's not a good life, but it's the only way in which we've learned how to be loved. And I'm not talking about the baddies out there. I'm not talking about, I don't know anything about Oakland University, so if they're great, I'm sorry. That don't mean to target them. Um, I'm not talking about just the, the, the nearest progressive university. I, I'm talking about just the normal ways that you and I have been formed. This is how we've been shaped. It's the hero narratives of every movie we watch it's it's the it's the subtext to most books that we read and so i think jesus has some guidance for this um if you have your bibles um, you can turn there if you don't you obviously did not perform in a way that (laughs) is admirable i'm just kidding please i'm just kidding You don't need to turn there if you don't like, if you don't have your Bible. Um, But Jesus says in Matthew 6, 1, uh, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen. In other words, there is a kind of performative individualism that has always been there. And so um, this may take a modern kind of flavor but jesus has always known that we want to be loved and we will do anything we can to be loved and be included jesus is is warning us that the human heart has an impulse to to trumpet itself we want to be seen and admired and it's how we've learned to be loved cleverly isn't it interesting jesus doesn't say don't display your riches don't display your skill sets. Don't display your balanced lives. Don't display your Europe trips. He doesn't, he's, he's not primarily concerned maybe with our Instagram feed. He's primarily concerned about how we display our virtues. Isn't that interesting? Because he gives three examples of what not to show people. Don't show people that you're giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. He says, when you you give to the poor, this is in verse two, sound no trumpet before you. Don't don't draw attention to yourself. Instead, give in secret to the one who, who only sees in secret, which is the Father. Or when you pray in Matthew. 6, 5 through 8. He says, don't give wordy, loud prayers so that people can hear you. He warns against the practices of the Pharisees who seem to just talk a lot when they pray as if God is r- just waiting for the right combination of words to bless them. Jesus is, is leading this, them away from using words that have no connection between your mouth and your heart, right? But instead, when you pray, go to Right, it's the it's like the food closet because there's no there's no windows there, and there's no windows into that. window. like when you're looking inside the house and you're looking around, you can't see them because they're inside somewhere else. It's hidden. Pray to the Father in secret. In verse six, he says. And then the last virtue, which is the most dramatic one, or the one I think that has the most provocative lessons, is fasting. He warns against practicing your fasting before others in verses 16 through 18. He says when you fast, don't disfigure your face. If you're a Christian long enough, you kind of learn how to carry yourself, right? You know how to speak in order to sound humble, right? You just kind of know. And if you're fasting or you you're doing spiritual things you just kind of know how to carry yourself you know if you're fasting come in sad well what's wrong it's fasting (laughs) don't do that jesus says instead when you fast anoint your head and wash your face which incidentally did you know that's what you do after you eat do the things that would display to others he just had a really good meal. When you fast, he says, fool others into thinking that you're eating. Now, do you see what Jesus is, is pointing out? When you're fasting, be careful what your face is telling others. So he's, he's pointing out the face. Don't, don't disfigure your face. Wash it. Don't look miserable. Smile as if you had a really good meal. It's almost as if Jesus is, is telling them to be a little misleading, not a very authentic Jesus here, right? I know the inside of your body is miserable, but I want your face to give the impression that you're doing great. But I actually think um, Jesus is not telling us to be uh, deceitful. He's providing a, a principle that doesn't just cover what you do when you fast, but he's, he's trying to give you a principle that covers all virtues. Fasting is not for the ones who can only see the face. Fasting is for the one who can see the heart. Right? That's who it's for. Don't, don't, don't miss this principle. Do, do you know how to fundamentally live not for those who can see your face, but for the one who can see your heart? Do you know how to live that way? Do you know how to form and shape your life so that it forms and shapes? your heart to live that way. Matthew 6 is, is not just teaching about fasting. It's actually teaching us about a, a fast within a fast. And what I mean by that is on the one hand, you're fasting from food, trying to stir and sustain your, your appetite for God. But on the other hand, you're, you're fasting from the glory and the praise of others since you probably crave the praise of the world more than you think you're fasting from that. Don't, don't under, Jesus is trying to not get us to underestimate these small crucifying steps of doing things for and with God in hiddenness and in secret and intentionally resisting what others might see. And it expands and grows your heart into being someone who rests more fully on what God sees and not the world. So repeated in, John, in Matthew 6, in verse 4 and verse 6 and verse 18 is that phrase, it's to your father who sees in secret. He'll reward you. The father doesn't just see our secret actions, and m- completely misses our public actions. But he, he does seem to be indifferent to what we do in order to dazzle others. And maybe more concerned about how we try to form a sense of self. H- how, how, do I, how do I get the feeling that I'm doing okay, that I'm making it? Live your life primarily for the one who sees not the face, but the heart. And we've been shaped to live this way. The narratives and the stories in our world shape us to live primarily for the people who see our faces. And it's making us miserable and anxious. I have a friend of mine who, who's uh, done a lot of work on the um, Sermon on the Mount, which is where Matthew 6 is kind of in the middle of. And he thinks the Sermon on the Mount is primarily, I don't think he's right, but he's kind of right. He thinks it's primarily about anxiety. Don't be anxious. And because he's seen Jesus trying to pull people away from behavior that's making you anxious and only anxious. I don't think he's right, but he's kind of right. Right, he's kind of there. We've been shaped to live this way, and it's making us anxious. Um, Jesus lived differently, obviously. And when we've been taught as Christians to not think of Jesus only as an example, right? We we want to depend on his grace. He's the atoning Savior. He died for your sins, so that you don't have to live up to his example, right? amen, right? The, the, the Sermon on the Mount is not a new law. Moses went up on the Mount, got the law. Jesus went on the Mount and gave the, t- uh, gave the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a new law to live up to, because that will crush you. Jesus died for all the sins that you didn't keep up with on the Sermon on the Mount, but it is a vision of the good life. It is a pattern to live your life after, in John um, 2, um, you don't have to turn there. Jesus has just turned all the water and the wine and threw another great party, extended the party into the night, and people started following him. Uh, they, they loved all of his great signs, and I guess especially the wine, I guess, and bread's coming. So, um, And a great crowd began to believe and follow him, but there's this phrase in verse 24 of chapter 2, it says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Now, if you've thought about that verse, maybe we kind of think that is talking more about what's in us, which is not great. And John is all about the fragility of faith. It just seems to kind of fade when things get hard. But really also it's also about Jesus. What's in Jesus? He didn't entrust himself to them. Jesus knew how to practice the principles of Matthew 6 to resist the world's praise and live in the secret the secret place with his Father. He he entrusted himself to something deeper than man's approval, a deeper a deeper reward, so to speak. It's it's as if Jesus was sort of humming To himself, Psalm 102, over and over and over again throughout his life. And it goes like this. They will perish, (laughs) but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but you are the same. And your years have no end. Because if you go to the end of the Gospel of John, what happens? The praise goes away. And they begin to cry out, crucify him. Right, exchange Barabbas for him, and he completely loses favor. And Jesus could quietly—I mean, he—what does is Isaiah says about him? He—he he, he went without talking. He went without trying to prove himself, like a lamb being led to the slaughter. Quiet. He could remain quiet at the same time embracing the cross because his life never depended on the praise of others. It just was never there. Jesus had the heart that could endure the cross and be slandered and still be okay. Remember the last time you were slandered? That was hard, wasn't it? Your impulse was to either argue with that person in the shower (laughs) if you couldn't do anything about it, or to find some way to redeem your sense of self in some way. And Jesus, the whole way, could just hear from his secret place with the Father over and over, you are my son, in whom I'm well pleased. You are my son. I love you. Now, what I want you to see is that The heart that takes these small crucifying steps, these fasts within the fasts, learns how to resist the praise of others and can be formed or counterformed into a heart that can pick up the cross and follow Christ even or especially when it costs us deeply. And I know our world will call this a life of diminishment. But I want you to see that this is the good life. It's the life with Jesus. Because Jesus takes it one step further. He says in, back in Matthew 6, but when you give to the needy, don't even let your, 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 right, your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I don't know if you've ever wondered what that phrase meant. I used to wash windows in uh, seminary. And um, there's this one lady who wanted to give me a little bit more money than her husband had already given me, and she says, don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. (laughs) I think it was a terrible application of that Bible, but I appreciated the (laughs) extra money. Um, But I think what Jesus is saying, there shouldn't be trumpets outside your heart, and there shouldn't be trumpets inside your heart. Don't let the right hand, there's something about your inner life that is not, there's a, a lack of, What's the turn? Frederick Bruner says this teaches us to be unself conscious and unself impressed because we're seeking for justification somewhere. And we need it in Jesus, but we're going to reach somewhere quicker and easier first. And Jesus is trying to liberate us from having to impress others and impress ourselves. And that is a hard battle because there's an inner war, there's an outer war. With ourselves, we're constantly asking, Am I doing okay? Or with others, you're constantly asking, Do you think I'm doing okay? Or are you just waiting for that like post you post on Instagram of your wonderful backyard? And someone says, oh, I want your life. And that is like the peak. Right? I did it. Someone wants my life. And that's it. And that's kind of lame. That person might even delete that comment later. Like, I overdid it. Right? Jesus wants to free you from that. And he wants to heal you from that. He's trying to teach us not to live for the eyes of others or even for ourselves, but to find our life in the secret place with the Father and be okay. The place where you can be yourself and be loved. All right, let's pray. Um, Father, uh, Jesus is a, um, a model to follow, and we can crush ourselves trying to be perfect like Him. But would we instead hear the words of Jesus when He says, come on to me, everyone who's weary and heavy laden with burdens. We've been trying to follow some vision of, good, of the good life that has made us weary and anxious and full of burdens Would you help us just to come to you and receive rest? The hearts that are really restless and longing for for good in this world, would you come by the power of your spirit and allow us to rest in your goodness? We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.